and, and go through chapters 19 and 20 of First Chronicles. Now, just by way of review, you know that David at this time that, that we're studying his life, really he's at the apex. He's at the height of his, his power, um, his um, you know, prestige. Uh, he is known by the other nations. He is beginning to defeat the enemies all around Israel. He has already subdued the Philistines, as we have seen, and uh, he has taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites, and he began to build the city of David, and he is also desiring to make the city of David a, a center of worship. So what he did is he took the Ark of the Covenant that had been in Kirjath-Jerim during the reign of Saul, and he brings it to Jerusalem. He puts it under a tent, and he begins to establish uh, that place, city of David, Jerusalem, as the place of worship, a central place of worship. And the Ark of the Covenant is under a tent, and he also begins to organize the Levites, establish worship leaders to where there is worship that has taken place before the Lord. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, represents the tangible presence of God. Um, and we know that he desired to have worship before the Lord continually day and night. So David, worship was very much an important part of his life and, and of his spiritual walk. And David was one that was a, a, a man after God's own heart. And he desired to please God. And that's what First Chronicles is really bringing out here. Just David's desire to please the Lord. And he continues to do that at this time. He is being blessed. He is defeating his enemies all around him. God's hand is on him. And at this time, as I mentioned to you, he is really at the peak, at the height of his, of his power and popularity and blessing that has taken place. Well, we saw last week that David wanted to build a temple, and it made sense. I mean, they are securely in the land. He is uh, the king that uh, is being blessed by the Lord, and he wants to build a permanent structure to where there is the sacrifices that has taken place and temple worship and um, a central place uh, to replace the tabernacle that had been in the wilderness. The tabernacle right now is in Gibeah, which is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, and he wants to build... Uh, the Lord a temple. And so he says that to Nathan. Nathan says, do all that is on your heart, David. It makes sense. You're wanting to please the Lord. You're securely the king. You're defeating the enemies all around you. And that was important because it was going to be a great project. And we are going to see that Solomon, when he does build the temple, he's going to raise up this huge workforce because those men are not going to be needed to defeat the enemies around them. They're not at war. So the word would come back to Nathan saying, you spoke too soon, Nathan. You go and tell David that he is not going to build the temple, that his son is going to do it. David, you're a man of war. Your hands are bloodied. And your son Solomon is going to be a man of peace. And he is going to be the one that will actually build the temple. But David, I'm going to build you a throne. In other words, I'm going to establish the throne of David. And upon the throne of David is going to come the Messiah. And that throne is going to be established forever. And we saw last week that David just was worshiping the Lord. David was one that said, oh Lord, who am I? Who am I that you would do such a wonderful thing? And he said, me, your servant. He refers to himself as a servant in that praise in chapter 17 of First Chronicles 10 times. He he does not say that I'm a great king and I deserve this and, and, you know, of course, you know, you're going to do great things for me, Lord. No, he says, oh, in his humility and, and just being overwhelmed by the goodness and gracious 
Ness of God, he says that, oh Lord, who am I? Who am I that you've brought me this far? And yet it's a small thing in your sight. You've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. And what David is saying is, you've taken me a shepherd. I was out in the field. When I was given devotions to the youth group when, before Vacation Bible School starts, we have devotions every morning. And I was talking to them about um, if they realized that how old David was when it was Samuel that came to Jesse's house there in Bethlehem to anoint the new king. And Samuel didn't know that it was going to be David. He was just told by the Lord that you go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse's house, and there you're going to anoint the new king of Israel. And there were the sons of Jesse lined up and Eliab the oldest came before Samuel and he said surely he's the Lord's anointed I mean he's handsome he's tall Um, look at his appearance and of course it was the Lord that said that Samuel don't just look at the appearance that's the way man does it but I look at the heart and he was one um, that was not chosen and the other brothers and Samuel's going who is the, uh, the one and Jesse do you have any more sons well the youngest is out there with the sheep. And they brought him in, and Samuel said, that's the one. That's the man after God's own heart. And I don't know if you realize, but he was only about 13 years old. And I was talking to the kids about that, that at their age, that they can have a heart after God, that they can have a desire to want to serve God and, and know him more, um, and God can use them in a, in a mighty, powerful way. And, and begin to, to show them to be a servant. Begin to do that work in them. You know, Mary was only about 16 years old when she got word that she was carrying the Christ child. It was Daniel that was only about 17 years old when he was taken away captive and he ended up serving the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar. And so we want to encourage our young people that God has a plan for you and a purpose and he wants to use you in the most powerful way. Oh, Lord, only you can do that, to take a shepherd boy and make me the ruler over your people. And God wants to do a great work in our lives as well, whatever he has for us and using us. And, and so David is just overwhelmed by all this. And we're your people, Lord. You've made us a great people and you've redeemed us. And, and so, Lord, your word has been established and we know that, um, and I know that, um, that this house that, um, and this throne of, of David is going to be established forever because you have said it. And so David is continuing to defeat his enemies all around. Chapter 18, as he subdued the Philistines, as I said. But there's still some uh, battles that David is going to have to fight. And let's begin to pick that up in chapter 19. And it happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died and his son reigned in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Hanun and the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. So we see here that apparently David and Nahash were friends, uh, the king of Ammon. David was a dominant king in the area, but he wasn't a tyrant. We know that he also was friends with uh, Hiram, the the king of Tyre and Sidon, and made a covenant with him, and Hiram would send uh, carpenters and 
uh, stone workers down to help him build his house, and then that will continue with the building of the temple. And, and David, he, he has this king of uh, the Ammon that showed kindness to him somehow, some way. We don't know the exact circumstances of it. So he dies, and David wants to send his ambassadors there to, to show kindness to his son, Hanan. And Hanan, how does he respond to that? Well, verse 3, And the princess of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, that, Hey, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servant not come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved them, and cut off their garments in the middle of their buttocks and sent them away. And then some went and told David about the man, and he sent to meet them and because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. And so some advisors, some unwise advisors say to Hanan, hey, you know what, you can't trust David. Uh, he just wants to spy out the land. He wants to just overthrow you. He wants to take your kingdom. So Hanan does something very foolish. He treats David's ambassadors in a very shameful way he cuts off their garments to expose their buttocks their backsides and he shaves off half their beards now that's embarrassing enough to, to have your buttocks you know exposed but you got to remember that especially back in this time in, in this area the middle east having a beard was uh, something of of uh of importance to men even today it's that way it's a sign of being a man and to shave off half your beard well, that was a terrible thing to do. So they are treated in a very shameful way, uh, and they're very much humiliated. They're very much embarrassed by this. And David comes along and says, listen, you guys go to Jericho. Go back over to Jordan River, and what you need to do is just wait in Jericho, and your beards are going to grow back, and we'll get you some new garments. You know, today people will try to embarrass you because you are a Christian. And they will try to humiliate you. We got kids that we minister to every week that they go to school, you know, and whether it's in the high school, middle school, even in the elementary schools, that there are those in the school that try to, you know, humiliate them, make fun of them because they're a Christian. Maybe you've experienced it at the workplace. I know that many of you have. There, there's those who try to embarrass you, make jokes you know, about your Christianity or about you personally. They'll try to humiliate you, and everybody gets a big laugh out of it, whatever it might be. Even Maybe you might even experience it out of your own family. You may be the only Christian in your family, and your family comes along and treats you in that way. And, and it can be difficult, but the world will come against us. And as I've mentioned this many times before, the world isn't going to be happy because we're Christians. The world will hate us. And Jesus said that the world will hate you because it hated me first. So there will be those, the enemy, the world that will come along and try to embarrass you, try to humiliate you, come against you in any way. But I want you to know something that your beard will grow back. <laughs> In other words, the Lord is going to strengthen you and strengthen you more so you can continue to just walk with Him and be used of Him. It was Jesus that said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when men persecute and revile you. Speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. 
And so realize that it is going to be the way of the world to try to humiliate you and come against you. The enemy will try to do anything to try to keep you down from serving him, from speaking about him, and walking with him. So David says, stay in Jericho, and we're going to take care of things. And, well, the people, what they do of Ammon, they saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David and Hanun, and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamian and from Syrian Mahaka and from Zobah. And they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots with the king of Mahaka and his people who came and encamped before Medeba, and also the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. Now when David heard of it, he sent Job and all the army of the mighty men. So Ammon, they do this foolish thing. They, they prepare themselves for war to come against David. They're being more hostile. They, they begin to have these allies, you know, these kingdoms of Syria, Mahaka, and Zobah. And they go to Mesopotamia, which is in the east. And they hire these uh, chariots and horsemen. And they got 32,000 chariots. Now, you got to realize this. Remember that David, when he had defeated his enemies, that what did he do? He hamstrung the horses when he defeated those enemies that had chariots that were being pulled by the horses. And why did David do that? You think, oh, David, if you didn't do that, then you could have had chariots to go against them. It's like David now is facing 32,000 tanks, and he doesn't have anything like that except his mighty men. And we've talked about David's mighty men and why they were used of the Lord because they were ones that as we saw the principles and the characters of those mighty men, God used them in a powerful way to defeat the enemy. And we know that David didn't trust in horses and chariots, but he was trusting in the Lord. And so David hamstrung those horses so they can be used in battle. And even though here is uh, the Syrians and, and these others that are coming against David, David's going to go to battle and he's going to defeat his enemies David heard of it, and Joab and the army, the mighty man, getting ready. And, and I tell you what, I would hate to go against David's mighty men. You know, we read about David's mighty men. These guys, that if you went against them, they gave you a whipping. And that's what they're going to do here with Ammon and these others that joined them. And the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who uh, had come were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. In verse 11, we go on to read, And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. In verse 13, Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God and May the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab divides the army into two groups. The Israelites are surrounded before them and behind them are the, the Syrians and their allies. The, and, and Ammon, the, the army of Ammon, is not a good place to be. And it's a place that I'm sure that probably most of you have felt that you've been in that place. Where the enemy is just surrounding you. You're surrounded by the enemy, you're surrounded by the world, by difficulties, by trials, and it's not a good place to be. And you're wondering, Lord, what can I do? And so these two brothers, Abishai and Joab, 
They're the, the nephews of David. They come up with this plan. Hey, if you're overpowered, then I'll come and help you. And if I'm overpowered, Joab says, then you come and help me. And I think that there's great wisdom in that. And I think there's a great principle in that for you and for me tonight. We need to be a part of a body of believers. And the reason is, is because you're going to find help and you're going to find strength and encouragement and blessing. Because every one of us will go through a season in our life, and maybe you're in that season now, that you feel overwhelmed, and you feel discouraged, and you feel like you're being overtaken. And it's wonderful to have brothers and sisters that you can go to, a church that people will love on you and support you and care about you. And that's what this church needs to be about. That's what the church should be doing is caring for others as they are feeling overwhelmed by the enemy because the enemy comes against us. And that's why I want to encourage you to continue to be a part of, of a body of believers. Don't pull away. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get isolated. You know, a couple weeks ago, Sue and I and David, we were in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone. We love going there, and I know some of you know that, but it's interesting. You go in the Lamar Valley, and you watch the grizzlies, and you watch the bison. They're having their little baby bisons. You watch the wolves are in the valley, and they're all in that valley, and the elk are having their young, and it's very fascinating to watch, and it's fascinating to watch those wolves, and what those wolves do, David and I, one early morning, we're watching two of them. They're just laying there on this table and we're watching them through the scope and they get up and they run towards these bison and they're going after a little baby bison they're just you know a couple days old and they want to chomp on this baby bison and this baby bison runs to its mom and runs to the big bison that are there and gets in the middle and they circle that little baby bison and those wolves didn't have a chance that little baby bison was protected but it's interesting to watch those wolves because they're very sneaky and they're very much, you know, patient. They're hunters. And so what they try to do with, you know, the baby bison out there or baby elk or whatever it is or uh, an animal that's weak is they'll try to draw them out, isolate them. Know that the enemy will do anything that he can to isolate you from the body of Christ. That we get frustrated, we get discouraged, we, we you know, get overwhelmed and we think, well, I'm just going to withdraw or we get distracted. Don't let that happen. Because the enemy knows as soon as that little baby bison gets isolated that those wolves are going to pounce on it and he knows that if you get isolated, it's going to be easier for him to pounce on you because he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you go into his territory and you get isolated, he's going to pounce on you and try to rip your head off. And that's why it's important to stay in the body of believers, to be encouraged and blessed. Don't pull away. There's a lot of things that will pull you away. Frustration, being overwhelmed, whatever it might be. And those who come in, we need to rally around them and love them and care for them. And we need to lift them up and let them know that they're loved here. And as you see others coming in that are hurting, it's just like Job said, hey, if, if I'm hurting, then you come and help me. But, but if you're hurting, I'll come and help you. And the Lord desires to use you to reach out to others to be able to build them up. Hey, 
this brother and sister's hurting. I want to be able to minister to them and encourage them. So that was the plan, and it's an important principle for us. But verse 13, uh, Joab makes three great points here that I think I want to reiterate. He says, first of all, be of good courage. Take courage to live for the Lord in the days in which we live in. Because it takes courage, doesn't it? And the Lord is the one that will give us courage. There was three young men in Daniel chapter 3 that stood before the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar, and was told that you are going to bow down to my statue that I made when you hear the sound of the music. And they said, we are not going to do that. And that king said, you will be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. King, we are not going to bow down to your statue. God will deliver us. We are not going to give in to you. And Nebuchadnezzar says that his face, his countenance changed. He was enraged. He was a hothead. And he ordered the furnace be turned up seven times, you know, hotter than normal. And they dropped those three guys in. But it took great courage for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to do that. Again, they were just young guys, probably just teenagers that are in their early 20s. It takes great courage for us today to stand for the Lord, to stand for what is right, to stand for the Word of God. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, and it could be the trend that we're going to continue to see, is we see Christians and we even see ministry leaders and pastors that are folding to the pressures of the world and society and you know, what's politically correct and, and beginning to compromise on the Word of God. We need to be courageous and stand firm for what God's word declares and for righteousness. So here he says that you be ones that be of good courage and let us be strong for our people, second of all, and for the cities of our God. You see, in that area, of course, it's a small area when you look at a map of Israel. They're just right over the Jordan River in Ammon. And if they get defeated, here's 32,000 chariots and right down you know, the road and across the river and on the other side is their families and their cities. It's interesting, when you go to Israel today and you talk to them, um, you wonder why are they so vigilant, you know, in protecting themselves? Because they have to be. They're a tiny country the size of New Jersey. And so they can't be defeated by those enemies all around them that want to destroy them because they know that right down the road is their families and their cities. So that's why they're so determined even today. It was in the Yom Kippur War that the Syrian tanks were coming right down the hill to the Sea of Galilee, only miles away from the Israeli cities. And so here is Joab saying, listen, you need to be uh, strong and of good courage for our people and for those cities of our God. This battle was bigger than themselves. The mighty man, their families, their cities needed them to win or it would affect them. Listen, dads, you need to be strong and of good courage for your family. Because if you're not, it's going to affect your family, your kids. You who are ministering to others, you need to be strong and good courage. I know for me as a pastor, I need to be strong and good courage, and I ask for your prayers. Because there are people that need us in our lives to be strong and of good courage for our kids and for our grandkids, dads and, and moms, grandparents. You who are ministry leaders, 
we need to be strong and of good courage because there are people that are looking to us to be strong and of good courage. And it isn't that we do it in our own energy and, you know, grit our teeth and I'm going to eat glass and, you know, spit nails. But it is a submission and a dependency totally on the Lord. Again, this is a huge battle. They're facing like 32,000 tanks, and they don't have any of that. And Lord, we need you. And so thirdly, he says, and may the Lord do what is right in his sight. In other words, Joab understood that the ultimate victory came from the Lord, just as it does with us. And we want the Lord to do what is right in his sight, not ours. So we submit to him in everything, right? So here is this battle that's taken place in verse 14. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, that they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city, so Joab went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river on Shophak, and the commander of Hadadezar's army went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over to Jordan, came upon them, and set up in battle array against them. So when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians, and killed Shaphak, the commander of the army. And when the servants of Hadadezar saw that they were defeated by Israel, that they made peace with David and became his servants, so the Syrians are not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. So here is Joab and, and David. They defeat the Syrians and the Ammonites. Retreat, verse 15, I want to draw attention. They, they retreat and they enter the city. And then Joab goes back to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why Joab went back to Jerusalem, why this insert is in here. David wipes out the Syrian reinforcements and Hadadezar surrenders and they become his servants. But they enter the city, and we know as we go into chapter 20 that Rabbah is that city that they entered into. So there's some unfinished business here. And one of the things that Joab may have done, it may have been late in the season. Some perhaps thought that he may have been injured or something happened. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But one of the possibilities, and I think one of the things that, that scholars suggest is this is late in the season. This is getting towards wintertime and they're in that area where it's snowy and it's hard. They didn't have the footwear that we have today. So they would quit fighting in the wintertime, and then in chapter 20, it happened in the spring of the year, and the times kings go out to battle, that Joab led the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. So what happens is David defeats the Syrians and, and uh, the Syrians' allies. Ammon, they go hide in, in, in this city, and they're there for the winter time. Joab goes back to Jerusalem. David ends up going back to Jerusalem. Before we move on, Romans chapter 8, verse 37 tells us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not only are we saved, but empowered to live a life for Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that the flesh doesn't dominate us and sin doesn't dominate us or the enemy. Because we're trusting the Lord. So chapter 20, here is spring times and the time of the year when kings should go out to battle. It's interesting that the writer of First Chronicles does not insert what happens at this time, which most of you know 
what does happen when Joab goes back to, to fight against Ammon to take the city Rabbah. David stays back, doesn't he? Second Samuel chapter 11. That David should have been out the war, but he didn't. He stayed in Jerusalem there. It was the time of the year when kings go out to battle, but he didn't go out to battle. And David, he ends up falling into sin, doesn't he, with Bathsheba at that time. And it's interesting that First Chronicles, as I said, doesn't mention that. I don't know why, but I want to bring it up once again because, you see, David should have been out to battle. But David probably is thinking, Joab's just going to go mop it up. It's going to be easy. I'm going to kick back. I'm going to take it easy. I've been doing all this fighting. I've been doing all this battling. And then I'm just going to stay here. And all of a sudden, he falls into sin. We really have to guard our hearts because whenever we put it in cruise control, whenever we kick back, whenever we become lazy and lethargic spiritually, that's when we're prone to fall into sin. And that's what happened with David. David was so blessed. He, he was defeating his enemies. He was at the peak and the height of his popularity and power and prestige, as I mentioned as we began our study, and he falls into sin. He should have been out the battle. And what happens is, in our lives, we can come to the point, well, I've served the Lord. I've gone to Bible study. I've gone to church. I've done all those things. I don't need to do it anymore. I'm tired of it. Maybe David was tired. He was about 50 years old. And it's very easy to just kind of kick it in cruise control. Oh, I've been there. I've done that. I've been a part of a church. I've been a part of a Bible study, you know, Bible group, a home fellowship, whatever it might be. But don't get lazy spiritually. Don't get comfortable. Continue to be committed. And the Lord has a place for you to be. They continue to be used of Him. But if we just get comfortable and we get lazy spiritually, we're more prone to fall into sin like David did. So David falls into sin with Bathsheba, and we see that here is Joab, as chapter 20 here tells that he would go and defeat Rabbah and overthrow it, verse 2, and David took the king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head, and also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and with iron picks and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon, and then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So what happens here is Joab, according to 2 Samuel chapter 12, he basically defeats the Ammonites. He calls for David to finish the battle. It's to make him look good. David, okay, we are just got to kind of mop up, so why don't you come? Why don't you come on out and it'll make you look good? It was symbolic and all of this. It's kind of like um, if, you know, uh, those of us who are parents and our kids are real small and we're doing a project and we do most of it and then we have our kids do just a little bit of it. Maybe out in the garden they'll plant a couple seeds and, and, and we'll say, wow, you know, uh, Billy here, he helped plant the garden and it makes them look good and they're so excited and all of this. Well, here, Joab, he does all the work and David wants you to come out and we'll put the crown on your head and it'll make you look good. And again, it was just symbolic. But David should have been out to battle with the men. David, David, don't you know who this is that you're asking for? This is the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah. 
You're two mighty men that are out there fighting for the kingdom. David, you know who this is. This is Bathsheba, the granddaughter of Ahithophel, your entrusted advisor, who I believe David was closer to than Jonathan. Because Psalm 55 indicates that to us. That we took sweet counsel together. That when Ahithophel spoke, it was like the oracles of God spoke. We walked to the house of the Lord together, took sweet counsel together. David was so close to Ahithophel, and I imagine them staying up late at night. And, and David is, is talking about the things of the Lord on his heart to Ahithophel, and he's speaking to them, and they were close. David, don't you know who this is? This is the granddaughter of Ahithophel. This is the daughter of a mighty man that's out there fighting, and also the wife of Uriah, who is listed in that list that we saw here in First Chronicles he is a mighty man. What are you doing, David? And David said, I don't care. I don't care. Because I'm going to give into my flesh. And I'm going to give into my lust. And it's a terrible place to be if we do that. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. And a whole lot of people get hurt. And a whole lot of people did get hurt. So David goes out, he wanders out there after he sins with Bathsheba, he takes the city, makes the people work, and verses 4 through 8 as we finish tonight. Now it happened afterwards that the war broke out at Gezer and the Philistines, and talks about uh, Hushathite, um, you know, killed Shappai, and who was one of the sons of the giants, and they were subdued. And again, there was war, verse 5, with the Philistines, and Elanan, the son of Jer killed uh, Lamai, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And yet again, there was war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature, verse 6 tells us. He had 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot. How would you like to see this guy? I bet he was really ugly looking. At the six fingers and, you know, on each hand and toes, he was born to the giants. And so when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, killed him. And these were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of the servants. I just want to end with this. David, when he was a young man, killed Goliath to get tight, whose spear was like a weaver's beam, being told once again. And then David's men also killed giants as well, didn't they? Had you ever noticed that Saul, when he was king, I told you a few weeks ago, you ever noticed Saul didn't have a heart after God. He never wrote the Lord a psalm. Never did. And don't pack it up quite yet. He never killed the giant. He was afraid of the giant. David, he killed giants, and then his men killed giants. Saul didn't kill giants, and his men did not kill any giants. It's not recorded. So what are you saying, Pastor Jeff? I want to end with this. As we talk about being strong and of good courage, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, that again, dads and parents and grandparents, we need to be ones of faith. We need to be ones that as we face the giants in our lives that we're trusting in the Lord 
And yes, it is hard, and yes, it is difficult in those trials. But we need to be ones that know that God's word is true. And you see, your kids are going to pick up on it, or those that you minister to. And when you're a man or woman of faith, it encourages them. Saul was one day, he was weak in faith, and his men were weak in faith. We influence, have great influence over the people that we lead, and we need to understand that. In Numbers chapters 13 and 14, you know the story, how the spies went into the land and they came back and they said, it's a good land. Look at these great big grapes. And, and it's just like the Lord said. Of course it was. The Lord said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's giants in the land. Giants in the land. Yeah, and these 10 spies were saying, we're but grasshoppers in their sight and they're going to gobble us up. And they said, Moses, why did you bring us out here? We need to go back to Egypt. We're going to die out here, and our children are going to die in the promised land there. We can't go in because of the giants. And who were the two spies? It was Joshua and Caleb. And they were the ones that said, who cares if they're giants? We're going to, you know, eat them up. We're going to take the land because God told us that he was going to give us the land. But the ten spies affected a whole bunch of people who said, we can't go in. Let's stone Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. So the Lord came along and said, you're going to be out in the wilderness for 40 years now because of your unfaithfulness, because of your disbelief, and, and because of your disobedience. For 40 years, they took laps around Mount Sinai. And if you want a dry spiritual life, then be one that you're going to not stand on the promises of God and not believe His Word. I know it's hard when you face giants. We all face them. But may we be men and women that we stand up and may our children say, you know what, Dad and Mom, that they, they have faith and they're trusting in the Lord. The people that we minister to, the people that watch us. And you know what, they're standing on what God's Word has to say and they're being strong and of good courage because you have great influence over to those that you lead. So I want to pray for all of us as we face the giants and the enemies and around us that we've talked about, that we would be strong and of good courage and do what is right in the sight of the Lord, and that is to trust in Him and rest in His love and to stand on His promises. So Lord, thank You. We thank You for this time we've had together. And these two short chapters that we've looked at. And Lord, we thank you that, that we're able to look at this more of, than just a history lesson, but Lord, to make application as you desire to speak to our hearts. And Father, I just thank you for all who have come out tonight and all the young people. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be men and women of God it takes great courage to stand for you today in a world that hates you, in a world that rebels against you and your ways. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that courage and give us the strength to be the moms and the dads that you've called us to, to be the grandparents that you've called us to, to be the leaders and to those that we're ministering to or the ministries that you've called us to. 
And we know that the enemy is going to try to isolate us or humiliate us or embarrass us or just try to discourage us to get us out of just serving you and walking with you and being strong in the Lord. So Lord, tonight, we need you desperately. Please do that work in our hearts to where we look to you to be our strength and our refuge, present help in time of trouble. I pray if there's anyone here that just is maybe discouraged, feeling down, and, and Lord, that you would just affirm in them that they are so valuable and you want to continue to use them, show yourself strong on behalf of them. If anyone is here that is being surrounded by the enemies, circumstances that you're facing that are hard and difficult, Lord, that you provide for them and give them strength and courage and, and Lord, provision. If you're here, maybe you're suffering in some way, emotionally, physically, that, Lord, you bring healing right now. But may we stand firm in your word and desire to know your way. And Lord, know that you are faithful and that you are good and that you love your people. And Father, I pray that we're a church that we encourage each other and we, we love each other. When those who come in, that the enemy has surrounded them and affected them or feeling downtrodden, that we would rally around them and build them up. And Lord, when we're feeling that way, that we wouldn't withdraw, but Lord, that we would engage and know that this is a place, Calvary Chapel, that they can come and receive the word of God in prayer and love and be strengthened. So Lord, we thank you for tonight.